Welcome to the Recon Podcast. Drugs have long been part of the gay culture and nightlife, but using drugs as part of your sex life has risen rapidly in recent years. In this episode, Will and I are joined by David Stewart, the man behind the coined term chemsex, to discuss its unique impact on the fetish scene. Please enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our second uh, podcast. First one was just a general chit chat, meet the team. And today we are going to be talking about, I guess, a combination of two things that's very relevant to our business. And this is on chems and kink. Um, It's always really a bit of a tricky subject because we know how much uh, there is out within the mainstream gay scene, but it's also quite prevalent within the fetish scene um, when we talk about the use of chems or drugs or, you know, people uh, doing extracurricular activities. And I'm guessing the point of this podcast is really not to demonize anyone or to judge anyone, um, but we <laughs> want to highlight, um, you know, I guess the prevalence or the prominence of it within uh, our scene, you know, what it does uh, to people. And I guess just to raise some awareness, uh, today I'm sitting with uh, Will and David, and I'm guessing I'll let them introduce themselves. So if you don't remember from the last podcast, uh, Antoine, I'm the events producer. Uh, It's Billy O'Billy on Recon. Uh, I am the brand executive. I am here again, hopefully not going to say like and stuff and (laughs) blah, 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 as often as I did last time. So we shall see. And hi, I'm David, David Stewart. I am um, a chemsex expert. I work as a chemsex therapist and I um, help to manage communities grapple with this phenomenon. And it is a phenomenon, isn't it, really? It's uh, taken hold. It is. I think let's, I guess, jump right in at the deep end. Um, David, you and I have met together uh, at a number of these events, and I think maybe the first time was a few years ago during an exhibition by Matt Spike, I think. Uh. And I remember meeting you then. So he did a, he was a photographer who's done a lot of work for us in the past, and he did a really interesting exhibition basically around uh, this issue, uh, chemsex and the fetish scene, which was really graphic. Um, it was quite interesting. The people that turned up to the exhibition and the people that actually stood up uh, and spoke their piece. And I'm guessing if we're jumping right in at the deep end, why don't you tell us a little bit more, David, about exactly what your expertise is, what you do. And also maybe if if you want to begin with telling us like your experience uh, around it. Okay. Jumping right in the deep end with my experience, um, I guess like a lot of gay men, I grew up with drugs as just a normal part of my culture. It was part how I partied, how I spent my weekend, how I had sex, how I danced, how I coped through the AIDS epidemic. It was they were just there, always present, and usually a really sort of helpful tool. Um, if I disregard the consequences, they, were, they helped me to manage lots and lots of things. And I had an indifferent attitude; I just accepted them as a norm in my life. Things did change, though. I'm a, I'm a 52-year-old man, and um, there was a period when the drugs were mostly fun, and uh, there was a lot of dancing, a lot of community coping together on dance yeah. floors kind of thing going on. But my um, use got darker as my um, 
trauma got darker and new drugs kind of arrived on the scene. There was a whole lot of things happening arriving that was new. There was grinder that I just couldn't cope with. I was struggling with <laughs> body image issues and, and sort of long-term HIV and having had AIDS diagnoses before and that interfering in my enjoyment of sex and pleasure. And then as Grinder was coming at the same time as new medicines were coming, changing the risk factor of the sex I was having. And as the same time this was happening, new drugs were arriving um, that were not as fun as the ones before, or they felt like it, but the consequences were boom. You know, I'm talking about crystal methamphetamine, mm. mephedrone and G and these Drugs, which are so hardcore, were wrapped up in these pretty packages that looked like, hey, fun, recreational, like you've always known. But actually, I think that they deserved a more cautionary kind of wrapper. And I I got caught up in that. I was, um, yeah, pretty hardcore doing, I was doing crystal meth benders, I suppose, um, about two a week, two days each. So I was sober less than half of the week and pretty much in a come down state or an intoxicated state for about 10 years. I was also drug dealing and doing lots of other kind of criminal stuff at the time. So I, my life was full on. And, but as, as I was trying to sort shit out and as I was trying to get a grip with all of this, I was seeking help or being sent to help because I got arrested. So I kind of had to find help. And I kept being driven towards these heroin addiction services where I was seeking care with a lot of people who were you know, the, the stereotype of street homelessness, heroin, street homelessness, alcoholism. And I was just dumbstruck at how nobody was equipped to help me. They didn't understand the drugs or how they made me feel horny or they didn't understand grinder or what my hookup culture was like. They didn't understand the history of HIV and AIDS or how to navigate sex and pleasure and all of that. And I really needed those ingredients. Mm. And chemsex was a word that I'd always kind of used with my mates for what we were engaging in and, and enjoying. But at that time, I just decided I, that was when I all sort of organically became an activist and started deciding chemsex is a way to name that phenomenon. Mm. If I can sort of separate different kind of drug cultures from one another, like there might be um, the American version of the crack cocaine epidemic that we know from the 80s. Mm. And there's an opium epidemic that happened also in America and California in the early 1900s. There's the current heroin epidemic as we kind of know it. And then there's chemsex. And I needed to name this and differentiate it from other kind of drug epidemics so that we, gay men who are struggling with grinder and the history of AIDS and these new drugs could get healthcare and support in culturally competent support services. And so that's really where I, I address this phenomenon by naming it and trying very hard around the world to get healthcare services to address it by name and culturally appropriate. Mm. I think it's always quite interesting when you listen to somebody else's story on, if I use the cliche word on how, excuse me, on how their, I guess their drug journey was. Um, you know, mine started quite earlier as a teenager. Um, not that I'm a user, I've, I've never used uh, any form of hard drugs, but when I was 16 years old, I joined uh, a youth group called Drug Free Achievers, and it was about educating other teens like in my age group. And we went around to schools giving talks and demonstrations on, you know, the Just Say No campaign. It was very uh, prominent at that time. So we were teaching people about the hazards of using drugs um, and maybe that they may take the option to just say no to using drugs. What's really interesting 
I come from the Bahamas, which at the time, you know, was basically drug haven. A lot of drugs coming from South America going into the U.S. came via the Bahamas. So I was completely surrounded by it my whole life. Um, and what's interesting, you know, the, I'm guessing having the strength to say no was because I had a relative, I could probably say, you know, my mom had a problem. And when I looked at my mom and see what her demise was like over a number of years, I, I'm guessing from the time I was 16 to 21 or so, it was really clear to me, okay, this is really a path I don't want to take. You know, at 21 years old, I had to go to court and sign papers out my mom locked away in a rehab facility. Mm -hmm. So this was a really difficult experience as a 21 year old mm. young gay man to have to, I was already dealing with my coming out and, you know, also the HIV crisis was at such a height at this time. If I talk to my mom now, it's really interesting. She's been sober for about 29 years now. And my mom says, you know, her first instance of taking it, she's like, oh my God, that's some good shit. And it's really funny because we can laugh about it now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really great that she's in a position where she can talk so openly about her feeling and her sensation. And I really understand that people who try for the first time, you have this euphoric sense and you want to recreate this. So I, I, I kind of get that this is, you know, this is how it comes through for a lot of people. I guess in my current life, you know, coming through the partying crisis, living in New York and going out to clubs and bars all the time, it was always interesting because people always asked me if I knew where they could get drugs. I was like, I have no idea. Mm. And I didn't want to know where you could get it. You know, I have many friends who use, I don't judge. You know, you, you're an adult, live your own life and have a good time. You know, but it's like I say, what we want to do with this, uh, like through this podcast is to help and, you know, raise some awareness about what's happening in our community right now. Well, first of all, I just, I never knew that about your mom, man. That's actually, wow. Uh, anyway, I'll just carry on. Uh, so I'll talk about my experience. Um, I started, drugs, I started dabbling. I've always been curious. Um, I started dabbling when I was a teenager, uh, just things like weed, speed, acid, stuff like that. And then university, I started having pills. Um, lots and lots of pills. And then basically my entire 20s was dominated by party drugs. So uh, pills, ketamine, cocaine, all that sort of stuff. And that was when I was in Manchester. Uh, pretty much every weekend I was high all weekend throughout my 20s. Um, then I moved to London. When I came to London, I didn't have a job. Well, I had got a job, but it wasn't a very good job. Um, I was just doing temp work and all my friends were progressing. And I kind of started like going again with the apps. When the apps came, um, it kind of, I exploded a bit. Like suddenly I had access to a hot guys. I was, I was having sex all the time and stuff. And then one time, you know, you go to a party and then someone introduces something to you and then you meet one person and then it kind of escalates. And then my friends are off doing fun things cause they can afford to do fun things, but I can't, but what I can afford is a bag of methadrone. And so I'd go to the, the near where I live, uh, there was always a party every weekend. Well, they were all over the place and you could always tell where they were because there was always clusters of guys on Grindr in the same spots. So that was a way you could always find a party because they were always there. And I got in with one sort of group of people, uh, like, it was just, sorry, this is a chemsex party. And I would, would, the guy who was there, who lived there was a dealer, but the whole thing was that you'd have guys around, everyone would chip in and pay money and then you'd spend all weekend like doing the drugs. Um, 
he liked me though, so I never actually ever had to pay for anything. Um, but I didn't even realize initially, I thought it was just like, oh, you just went over and he gave you drugs, but everyone was paying money in for like two years. I never realized it was just like, oh yeah, I'll help myself. Um, but anyway, so I did that. The thing is looking back, I can't deny I had a good time. I had a good time, but I was in a very low place and uh, I wasn't happy with where my life was going. So it was just easy to fall into it. And then that continued for several years. But actually, weirdly, a turning point for me was getting the job at Recon because prior to getting the job here, my job, it didn't matter. It wasn't crucial. But then actually, I got the job at Recon and suddenly had to use my brain and I had to think. And actually, the weekend before I started, I, um, I got high, I had some crazy adventures, which I always prone to doing. And I started on the Monday and um, Sandy took me into the office and he went through everything that was going to be my responsibility. And I'd hardly slept all weekend. And I was just went into a panic. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't have the abilities and stuff. And I was just sat there thinking, oh my God. But then as the day wore on, I realized Calm, I calmed down and I realized I could do it. And that was a turning point. I'm not going to lie. Like that wasn't the end of my drug story and stuff. Like not far it from it. It was not. No. And, you know, working at Recon and, and just over the last five years, I do still partake, but not like that. Like I'm not, I don't go to sex parties. I don't do that. I do some, you know, get high. Although in the last sort of year or so, I've done less and less and less. I've not, I've kind of weaned myself off the, the sort of chemsex drugs like the meth drones and the G's and the meth. And I'll, you know, periodically take coke with my friends or we'll go to a club and I'll take ecstasy and stuff. But it was took me to a dark place, but I'm still here. And yeah, that's my story. I think it's um, amazing for me to hear that, you know, there was the, the period when you're being introduced to drugs and being sort of groomed into that culture, not, not in a malicious way, but, you know, things were becoming normalized. Yeah. And... I've heard so many stories of people who start their job on a come down or have to go into some extraordinarily intense new experience on a come down and on a chemsex come like on a two or three day bend to come down, it's yeah. pretty hard. But if you're in an environment where it's talked about, yeah. if it's in an environment where you're not going to be shamed, disciplined or, or it's misunderstood, I think it can make a huge difference. Uh, if, if, you, if it had been another organisation where you weren't allowed to fail where you were just identified as an addict or a junkie or anything awful like that because you did, it could have worked out so much more worse for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we like, not recon wide, but within our team, uh, we're all gay men. We all, you know, we all know what's what and stuff. And we also can see signs and examples and stuff within each other, but, um, I think yeah. one of the things that's really good, you know, especially as a team, we're always here for each other and we always support each other. You know, even when we're out at events or something else is happening, someone's always keeping an eye on, you know, even if someone's partying and having a little bit of extra fun, someone's always keeping an eye out. And I think it's probably a good culture that we have within, you know, that we're always, you know, watching each other's backs. Cultural competence is an, a phenomenal two words that mean a whole lot. Drug use isn't just as simple as drugs are bad and it's not as simple as everyone should stop and it's not as simple as um, if you address it, you'll get over it. It really does require cultural competence and understanding. And when we're talking about chemsex and use of drugs within our gay and queer cultures and our clubs, which is what's uniting us all here today, mm -hmm. if there is kindness there, if there is an understanding of what's normal in our culture and 
a really complex, rich understanding of the diversity of all of those influences, then we will be okay. Yeah, I was going to say actually, and obviously this is no disrespect to the work you've did, Antoine, it's really impressive, but if you think back on the just say no campaign, it was a campaign that was always, always destined to fail because yeah. it's like, you can't, it's it's not something that it didn't work. In, you know, it's, and things like the war on drugs and blah, blah, blah. And they all come from this point of like, be gone out, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, that's just not how people are. And people will find a ways to do the things they want to do. So. I think, you know, with the turning into a, you know, from that teenager into, I'm guessing the mature adult I am today, mm. you know, I think, think probably by the time as I got into my mid-twenties, it was also very relevant, even before, you know, at the point of, you know, having to put my mom away. Um, and then years later, doing the same thing for a partner, you know, getting a partner signed into a rehab facility. It's very evident that, you know, the just say no will never work. You know, the cold turkey does not work for anyone. Yeah. And I think there has to be a level of understanding of what is happening in people's lives of what's, you know, what they're going through. And it's, again, I say the same, you know, you're not condoning, um, you know, anyone's use or abuse of it whatsoever. But if I think of it in, you know, relations to what we do here, you know, and, and how it, you know, works like within the scene, um, you know, there are lots of people who, think that they need the boost or the help. So it goes a little bit beyond, you know, what you would do on the dance floor to take your shirt off and dance all night long and have a really good time. And I think, you know, people want to explore and experience and yeah, they want to try new things. And I think a lot of people, the drugs or the chems helps them to bring their inhibitions down. Well, 100%. In fact, if I, you know, if I'm going to be brutally honest and stuff about myself and it's, you know, something chems facilitated for me confidence and being able to do stuff like, and it's almost kind of like, so I look back, um, and almost I'd say 80% of the sex I had was on drugs, even before it was like specifically for the purpose of having drugs with chem sex. So like if I go to a club, you know, I'd have pills, be up all night and go have sex. Like with my, me and my friends back when we lived in Manchester, we'd always go back to after parties, but my friends, it's, it was never a sex extra party. We were just like staying up and listening to disco and just like well, staying up all weekend and dancing and laughing and stuff like that. But invariably, at some point I'd get my phone out and have a look and then I'd just like sneak off for a grind, come back again, join the party, maybe go for another one and stuff. And it was just kind of this process. But I did that because the drugs kind of gave me the confidence boost to get out because, you know, sometimes because of I have a back injury and it means that I'm offering pain and my body weight is constantly fluctuating. But if I'm high, I don't care so much and I can just do whatever and get involved. And there's a part of me that's, I have quite a reckless personality as I think Chris <laughs> been taking, well, not reckless. I just, I just enjoy adventures. You're and free spirited. Yeah. And, but drugs facilitate that. And, and it was always a joke. Oh, you know, what messes has Will got himself into or where he's, where's yeah, Will I've ended up? I've seen you in a few messes. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> just, you know, where, where will it take him? And it's because the drugs kind of gave me the, the confidence to do that. And it's actually interesting that recently I've been seeing someone for like a year and we've not, I mean, we've done a bit of coke and stuff together, but we've never, I've never done drugs with him 
for the purpose of having sex. If anything, I'd rather not because we have a connection and our sex is great without them and stuff. And it, it was so weird, the fact that I got to 38 years old and mm. it took me that long to realize that actually sex could be equally good, if not better, not yeah. high and stuff. You, we might not be going all day, all night, all day, all night, but it's like, it's so much better without, for me personally. I think this is so double-sided, you know, whereas I'm the, guy who I prefer to play with people who are sober, who are not high. Um, I've had a number of very interesting experiences, you know, before in meeting up a guy who says, oh, I'm a little bit high and I've taken a little bit of something. Do you mind? I'm like, no, come on over. Lord have mercy. That guy <laughs> comes over. If you've ever tried shagging a guy who's high and you're the only one who's sober, it's quite interesting yeah. and, you know, bordering on funny. You know, the skittish and jumping. And I remember the guy just kept getting up and like running to the window and opening the door and closing the door yeah. and looking through the blinds. And I was thinking, what the fuck is happening? I've been that guy it was so at many point times. I started to laugh. Yeah. You know, it was and not in like in a laugh, like in a sad way, but it was it really was funny, you know, and he was having an amazing time, you know, whereas for me, it was just completely awkward. Yeah. You know, so now I'm at the point where after having a number of really awkward experiences and once having to call an ambulance for someone who had taken a little too much of something as well, I thought, that's it. I'm not gonna play, you know, with guys who are, you know, high anymore. And even saying that, I then turn around and say, well, that makes me a small bit of a hypocrite because I tell you, there's been the odd bit of ass that I've made the exception for. I'm like, yep, you can come on over. I'm gonna have some of that. I think it's about, um boundaries you know and finding your own place or where you're comfortable with with what you're at and i'm hearing two stories today where without getting all sciencey you know where we're products of our cognitive past if we this is associated with that if i associate a love with childhood then i will that's an association that brings into my adulthood but i associate this fetish gear with a sex act and that kind of sticks and it, and it becomes a constant arousal for me and if you're introduced to intoxication as a young person with sex yeah. is something that is in disinhibiting and helps you with that, then you can form a relationship to that too. And if you're in a space where you can have conversations about this, where drug support or chemistry support doesn't have to be about um, being told off or going when you've got a problem, but learning what your boundaries are. Antoine has boundaries about, I've learned from experience that my sex is more enjoyable when I have boundaries like I will only have sex with other sober people and it works for him. And uh, will you learn the, at the ripe old age of 30, what was it, eight 30, or something? Yeah. You learned how to enjoy sex without needing to be disinhibited. Mm -hmm. And so you can establish your own boundaries of how you can, what you can put in place to make sex awesome for you. Yeah. And as we as a community can label each other and disapprove and approve of each other's use or behavior or boundaries, it's all irrelevant because it's a very personal experience of these are my boundaries. This is what I need to enjoy pleasure. And I actually need my community to help me get there by having conversations about this. Yeah. I think the conversations are good, but I have to say, you know, if uh, within the kink scene, it then makes my sex life a little bit more complicated. You know, I've you know been chatted up before by people who want to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things that I really like. Yeah. But of course, they then need, you know, the chems or the drugs to help them relax or to help them push their own boundaries when it comes into, you know, doing new experiences, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I mean, we probably all know somebody who loves a fist or loves having a double fist, but he can only do that if he's a little bit high on something, mm -hmm. you know. So he's not having his best kink or his best fetish experience unless he's doing it, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas on the same hand, the other guy who's doing it 
could be a sober guy. And he also knows, well, I actually prefer that my guy take something because if he does, I know that I can, you know, go all the way up to the elbow with my, you know, or I can cane him until the ass is bloody red, you know? So it's, it's, it's really a difficult point to, it's a difficult thing to balance, but you know, we, that's where good experts can be helpful. Yeah. You know, because a, a person that's saying, I, I'm experiencing consequences with drugs um, that I don't like. I can't, I can't give them up because I enjoy getting fisted and I can't enjoy getting fisted without them. So here I am with this quandary that I can't resolve. How do I? And it's something that you do need some help with sometimes. Isn't there a danger element though as well with taking the drugs when you're doing fisting and stuff like that? Because it, it, it makes you go past your limits and stuff or like it can be hard, like physically dangerous. And stuff. I think with kink there's always an element of danger when the, the drugs are involved because very often your inhibitions come down so much you may be less aware of what your true boundaries really are or yeah. what your true limit actually is you know and you could potentially be causing yourself quite a bit of harm if you're just going to lie there and let someone go all the way up to the elbow you yeah. know and that may not be what your body's limit actually is if you're lying there in the state of euphoria and you can't tell yeah my friend who's big into fisting he won't touch anything like well that's like he would is some d d like really disassociative ones and stuff that he won't go near if he's having a session just because you know he doesn't he knows within himself that his instinct is always to go bigger and harder when he's high and stuff but then sometimes your body just isn't prepared for bigger and harder you know so it's it's one of the things that has come up for us very interesting like throughout our events you know you talk to two different sets of people and you get two completely different angles on it. You know, they come out to an event and they want to have a good time. There are people who we know will come out and they've taken something because they want to feel relaxed, first of all, just to get in the door mm -hmm. and feel comfortable within that scene because it can be mm -hmm. extremely overwhelming if you've not walked into a dark room with a thousand men going sure. at it before. It's absolutely mind-blowing. So I get that kind of fear that people want to lower their guard a little bit so they can start to be relaxed with the atmosphere. At the same time, you talk to people who said, oh, I'll come out to a party and I'll never take anything because if I play, I want to be sober. You know, I want to know what I'm doing. Whereas the other people will come out and they're happy, you know, because they want to not think about it. They want to go into this other headspace, into the other world, and they want to have that euphoric feeling when they're out, you know, having a good time. And it's like, okay, if that I go, risk. I can lie in a sling and take it all night long. It's a fetish thinking. on its own, being yeah. so disinhibited that you're not in control. Yeah, I, yeah. I, in some regards, I think I was quite prone to that. I, like, for the, you know, giving you courage or whatever to go to events, I think that played a lot into it for me as well. Um, I think obviously working here and going to more and more events, that kind of fell by the wayside. But I think I did use drugs as a crutch to kind of like boost me in ways that I wouldn't necessarily have been boosted before. We had um, oh, a few months back, we had a another talk with David at uh, 20th Century House in Soho Square and about the same topic. And somebody questioned me on something that we said during our talk. And I remember giving the scenario of, you know, as an events producer, we have, I have a responsibility to people that come to our events. You know, we've done events in other places around the world where we started with just a medic. And then we suddenly realized we needed two medics and then we needed a medic and a doctor. And then we needed to make sure we also had an ambulance nearby. And I think it's also, it's understanding the risks, I guess, if I call it, that people take 
to come out and we have to somehow be prepared for that. Um, as an events producer, I have a responsibility to the people that come to my events, you know, and somebody was questioning, well, if you know that people are going to come to your events and do drugs, then why should you host the event? Shouldn't you cancel the event? I thought, mm, that's quite an interesting... <laughs> should we cancel every event well, ever? yeah, and I, you know, my thing was, well, does that mean that we should cancel things like carnivals <laughs> and prides and music festivals yeah. and we should have no events whatsoever? The fact that people are going to take them isn't necessarily reason to cancel them. You know, the percentage of people is potentially really small versus the people who come out and that are sober and having a good time and that can have a good time without. But we have a responsibility, as I say again, to watch each other's backs and yeah, keep an eye sure. out for those people. I think one of the things that people don't understand is when you're doing this, you know, in your licensing for your venue or getting the permit for your event, very often you go through a series of grilling, you know, by the venues themselves and the venues get a grilling from the council. And very often it's the council that actually demands. You know, I remember this, the little lady saying to me, I know what you gay boys are like. If you can get it on, you're going to do it. So I want to make sure when you do this event, you have an ambulance, you have a doctor, or blah, mm. blah, blah. And I think it's much better to be prepared for the just in case rather than for us to be reckless and not give a shit about what people are doing when they come in the door at all. Like when it comes to, um, to drugs on the fetish scene, I, 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 I just want to say like, you know, I'm not an expert in any shape or form. I should have said this from the beginning, but well, apart from my experience, but I have no facts, I have no figures, I have no statistics, but how do, how do you think the proportion of drug use on the face scene might compare to just the regular gay scene or, you know, another scene within the gay thing? Because for me personally, for, in my own experience, it actually seems to be less on the fetish scene than it is in the wider gay scene. At recon events and stuff, there's been many an event where I've been a bit of a mess. Um, and Just a bit. I've been having a nice time, but anyway, <laughs> I have been a bit all over the place. But in the, fet in the fetish scene, I think there tend, well, in my experience, there seems to be there's few, it seems to be fewer messes as far as I'm concerned. There's fewer me's, but you know. Like. I think as the, you know, the producer of Recon events, I knock on wood. I count myself really lucky as a producer and a promoter that we have had events before and we have never, this probably sounds really extreme, but that we have never had a death at one of our events. And I'm really glad that we can you know, raise our hands up to that. Whereas I know a lot of other organizers who are not as lucky as we are. Mm. And in my experience, I think I would agree. If I walk around record events, yes, there are sometimes people who are tweaking and, and a little bit higher, having a good time, but the majority of people are not. And so I would probably say it's less likely. Statistically, yeah. Well, you're quite right. It's um, less likely to, it happens less often, and even though I don't go. So this is statistic based, not. Yeah personal based um but there's a reason for it and a really one i kind of really really like which is when drugs are problematic visibly so then it's usually because they're being used to manage disinhibition mm. to feed disinhibition or to mask shame so if i have a problem putting my legs in the air and getting fucked because it's it was taught to me in the 70s that it was a feminine role to do that. And in the masculine 80s and 90s, I had to be masculine. It was hard for me to be a bottom. So drugs would help me help me become disinhibited to be able to enjoy that. And so if drugs can help with that purpose, and if chemsex as a problematic issue within our communities is being used to mask all of the shame associated mm. with gay sex, which quite often it is, well, the, the fetish community as such has less shame in it. Mm. It's a community of people that, 
take ownership over the sex. It's not like sex that are just trying to navigate their way through and find affection and love and pleasure. Yeah. People have sought it out and they find out and sort it and spend, put money towards the kind of gear that's associated with their sexual pleasure. They have a community where people talk about what their sexual pleasures are in a very non-shaming way compared to the general society. And so that's a really, really good reason why drug use is less common amongst fetish communities. That's really interesting. And it makes a whole lot of sense when you phrase it like that. I've never really thought about that. And I think that ties in with me as someone who, uh, like I said in the previous episode, like I don't have any hard and fast fetishes. I'm more, I always just used to see myself as like an open-minded kind of slut. Slut loose and fancy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of experimental. So I think within for myself and stuff, so... Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. I think it makes. A I'm total glad sense. you found the fetish community then. Yeah, yeah, but no, definitely. And we are very glad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's one of the things you know interesting about this job. You know, traveling around the world, and you, I think, whenever we go, we try to experience different things in different countries, and we have been to fetish as well as non-fetish events in lots of other places, and it's always really quite interesting to see the commonalities between certain events and the extreme differences in some others. Sandy and I went to an event a few years ago where we were actually planning to go the following day to the screening of the Chemsex documentary. Oh. And we went to a party by another organizer. Where was this, um, sorry, This, we were in Sydney. Right. And we went to another party, which I guess started around 11 o'clock, we got there at 11.45. And the amount of people who were visibly on something was quite shocking, being only 45 minutes in. You know, sometimes you find like people may take a bit later. I don't know. This is this is in my just assumption. They may take a bit later because they want to dance the whole night away rather than to start the party off. I can't imagine that 70, 75% of this um, you know, the party goers in this place would have kickstarted at 11 o'clock, but it was really quite something. And that was something I'd never experienced at any other party before anywhere that I've been. You know, and this is going to parties in Madrid, Barcelona, Sydney, LA, San Francisco, um, you know, Berlin. I've not experienced it on this level. What was really quite interesting was, you know, during the talk at the end of the documentary, the chemsex thing came up and they were really quite adamant that this was not a, a Sydney issue. This was a London issue. This was a, this, was, this was a European or an American issue that it wasn't happening. And I thought these people are in absolute denial. This is an, an issue across the community. It does manifest differently in every city. And I, I have the privilege of traveling to so many cities, particularly to have conversations with communities about this. And it is interesting how it differs in different cities. And usually it differs, I mean, if there's a city, let's say somewhere like Tel Aviv, where there is a very religious base, where um, it's okay to be gay the right way. Like if, I'm talking about Tel Aviv, not Israel generally, but it's, if you're gay in Tel Aviv and you have a husband and you can have some children perhaps, then you're very welcome as part of the normal family unit. Mm. But if you're one of the, inverted commas, slutty gays that does the club scene and the international circuit scene and doesn't really want to live that life, then you can very, be very much shamed by your general community. And so drug use manifests hugely in that melting pot there as a coping tool for all of the complex dynamics. Somewhere like, um, let's say, Amsterdam, where there are a lot of drugs, but there's also a culture of 
very liberal sex education from a very young age in the schools, very liberal attitudes towards um, sex work, very liberal attitudes towards drug use where you can buy them on the street and whether you're driven more towards support services than you are towards the criminal justice system. And there, even though there's quite a lot of chems there, the amount of problematic drug mm. use is quite low. Yeah. And Sydney's really interesting because it has a phenomenal volume of crystal meth within the city. Mm. And there's been these awful campaigns uh, that have been very shaming about meth in particular, specifically meth. And I'm not talking about gay use of it like we know, but it's it's general use. And so the denial level about drug use within the gay community with that drug is quite phenomenal there, I've noticed. And um, it's difficult as an activist to help, and especially if that's my hometown. It's not my home home country, but that's when you want to help your city address it and you met, met with denial and shame, it's quite a challenge. Mm. I think one of the things we want to get back to is to, you know, figuring out, and it's like, I'll say this again, you know, our intent is not to to shame mm. anyone, but continue to raise awareness. And I think um, let's take our first break, shall we? And then maybe at some point when we come back in a second, we will also talk about, you know, resources we can put out or where we can direct people. Um, who may want some more information or people who may feel like at a, they're at a point where they want to talk to someone about it or they want to have some help. So we'll have a short break and then we'll be back. Download the Recon app now, available on iOS and Android. Select your top five fetish interests to display on your profile from our many categories such as bondage, feet, chastity, and newly added electro. Upload hundreds of photos and customize your galleries. Explore and cruise the thousands of kinky guys online or nearby today. Find your fetish, show your fetish, find fetish men. We're back with the second part, but I think uh, before we move on to the next bit, we've just had a little chat in our break and there are a few bits I think we wanted to mention very quickly. One of the things I wanted to touch on that I really, I remembered, you know, and when it comes to drugs and events, you know, there are some really interesting uh, anecdotes, you know, of people coming in and, you know, they struggle with, I don't want security to check my bags or anything else. And I think one of the things that people don't understand Sometimes why the security check is so rigorous is also they're trying to, you know, prevent drugs getting in the venue. People have always asked me, well, you know, you're a promoter. Don't you provide your own dealer? Definitely not. It's something I will never do. I don't want to be responsible for what happens to you. I don't even want to know where you get it. And yet you are responsible. And yeah, and I try to be responsible. I think one of the most clever things, you know, people always talk, they wonder why you can't come in. Um, or why they say seal bottles or poppers only. And that is because people use the poppers bottle for GHB or something else, you know? So they're trying to use these tactics to basically stop you bringing drugs into the clubs. One thing that I found very interesting a while back was clubs at one point said that you couldn't bring in chewing gum. And one of the reasons was because they had discovered that some uh, clever queen decided to use the pipette and drip the GHB in, onto the chewing gum. God. And that, you know, it was just figuring out, like, the guy had an episode. How did you get it in? And he had to admit that it was via the chewing gum. I was like, fucking hell, that was... Oh, that sounds foul. The, the mean, taste would be horrendous. <laughs> but. When people are determined, you know, they get very creative and we know that the gay boys can be very creative with these kinds of things. You know, I have, um, you know, another group of friends who they like their party drugs 
And they're very clever with it. You know, the one's a doctor and they're a group of four friends, uh, often together. And he actually measures out and he does times like he sets an alarm. So, you know, he, when he goes up with the boys, they know they never accept anything from anyone else. They only take from him Whoa, yeah. and they don't take anything until his alarm rings. So it's timed at intervals that, that and this way, I think, well, it's a very good way to be out and having a good time and to be careful to rather be, than just being wild. And yeah, it just, gee, it has to be about timing because it can actually be deadly and stuff if people aren't are taking it within that sort of hour or so time frame and stuff. Like I think I, over the years I've known numerous people who have died and without question like through drug use and stuff and then it's never fortunately touch wood it's never been any of my like sort of good close friends it's more tangential people like friend or a friend or someone who you used to be on the scene with and you used to see at parties and stuff like that and like you know nine times out of ten you don't even need to tell I don't know, you don't even need to ask because the assumption is really that it probably will be G. I mean, I don't know the statistics, but in my personal experience, people have overdosed on G and it's it's gone terribly wrong. I mean, myself, I've had some, like, okay. The I, close experiences. Yeah, but the last few, the last two big, we used to call them, uh, Will's wild weekends and basically it was where I would disappear for a weekend and it was after I'd kind of got the job at recon and I'd sort of calmed down a lot but then periodically over like maybe like quarterly I'd have one of these wild weekends where suddenly I'd just like go back off the rails and the last two times that happened involved G and involved bad happenings and I've got a scar on my knee to prove it and stuff. And You're it's just like near death experience. Not quite, not, not that bad, but like stuff happened that like, I won't name any names, but uh, just someone who I thought I could trust and turns out I couldn't. And they did some really sort of quite shady stuff in my house and stuff. And uh, it was, it wasn't great. And that, that instant and then, the next one after that were like, similar, not like with a, you know, a bad actor, more just my own kind of stupidity and stuff. So G is not the one. Well, I, I don't want to take it ever again. So, yeah. You're talking, you're taking responsibility for something which I think is a shared responsibility. You're saying that awful things happen to you and in your house, things which sound really traumatic to me without knowing the details. Mm. And you're saying that, that these are, these are, this is the fun we're having on our scenes. Our fun and pleasure and sex and dancing and community shouldn't be about very traumatising, very dangerous experiences. Yeah. And when they are, you don't just say, it's my fault, I took too much G, we have to all take responsibility for this. Yeah, oh, I know. And in this instance, it was the person as well. I mean, I have no contact with them anymore and stuff. But I think it's with G in particular, the, for me personally, for the places that it takes me to and the kind of it's that one step beyond kind of inhibition. It's kind of like, I mean, that the time where I scarred my knee, um, I had had a glass of water, what I thought was water when I was leaving like the final hook. I'd been on doing a circuit of going around different places and stuff. And I'd had what I thought was a glass of water before I left to go home because it was Sunday evening and it was, you know, there was G in it and stuff, but then it only really kicked in after I'd left the flat. And suddenly I was out on on a Sunday afternoon around uh, part of East London. And all I can remember from it is I get flashes of people 
leaning over me, asking me if I'm okay. And I was obviously writhing on the floor. Then the next thing I remember is other people asking me if I'm okay in a different part of the thing. And then one time it was a police officer who sort of seemed to laugh it off. And then at some point I tripped, cut my knee, lost my keys and stuff. And then I somehow, thank God, I got home. But that was a, a very rude awakening That's for me. That's a near-death yeah. experience, Will. I yeah. hate to th- do it. This is a very frightening thing. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for telling us. But yeah, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was a very good big wake up call and stuff. That so I'd been out in the world, and someone actually who I'd been speaking to on Grind early on had said that they saw me and they they'd come up to me and asked me for me if I was okay. And all I can just think of is just what was it? You know, like what would I have looked like to? I was on a high street at points and stuff, and there's like you know shoppers and normal people and everyday people and. And on a Sunday afternoon, like just going about their life and there's this person stumbling around and I just think, oh my God, that I, I can't believe I was out of state, but. I think there were so many levels to this, you know. I think in, you know, your point of us all taking responsibility for it, um, this is definitely something that we have to learn to do, but it also gets a little more tricky. I'm not necessarily, I will say it's complicated. You know, when you think about how we meet these people, mm-hmm. you know, and nowadays it's more often than not that we meet these people on apps, you know, we're chatting and hookup, whether it's, you know, any of the I guess the three most popular, it's Recon, Grinder, or Scruff or whatever it is, you know, you, you're potentially meeting up with a stranger, someone you don't know, and then immediately you're putting your trust or your faith in them. You, you want to trust them, which is not very often very easy to do and anything can happen. And if you're not prepared for anything to happen, um, it can go wrong very easily. I, f- I think as well, though, with, when you, you bring up the apps and stuff, we have to acknowledge that the rise of the apps has, you know, well, I mean, there's increased the rise of chemsex and stuff. And oh, completely. And like, you know, we, you know, we work freak on we are an app and stuff, and we have to take these into considerations and stuff. I mean, I think there's a scale of which ones are probably the worst offenders, but not worst offenders, but anyway. So the rise of the apps has definitely, because it's facilitated people meeting up and skipping kind of the whole sort of socialized section of going to clubs and bars and things like that. And it's kind of access that's led to this, I guess. The, the apps made us, uh, sped up our sex lives. It sped up the process of getting to know someone and bonding someone before you are quite profoundly intimate with them. The trust, it sped up that whole trust building bit. It also, it got associated much more with social affirmation and social structure and social co- constructs, the same way that we might like, get lots, don't get lots of likes on Instagram. What's the difference between getting lots of notifications on Grindr? And that's a messy area for yeah. a vulnerable person that hasn't quite figured out the role sex is playing in their lives. And for the fact that it's a great market for these hardcore drugs as well. Yeah, for sure. The door has been kicked open so wide um, in the context of the apps, you know, I've had like a guy came over before he goes, oh, I'm fine, but I've taken a bit of something just to calm me down because I was nervous about meeting you. And when you think about, you know, to that, taking it back to that base level in terms mm-hmm. of our social interaction and our social contact with people, if you have to take something just to chat to someone or just to say hi to someone face to face rather than from behind the the barrier of an app you know what has it been doing to you know our culture over so many years it, it has been interesting to kind of watch this process of how if i dare say acceptable it has become 
to now be open about your use on apps. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure that any one is any worse than the other, because if you look at people's profiles on many different things, they're very open and often very explicit about the kinds of things that they do. And I remember a while back, I was uh, on holiday in the US and listening to the news driving in the car. You know, my niece is sitting in the seat behind and I'm listening to the news that the police are investigating a particular app for, as far as they were concerned, facilitating the sale of drugs. Because said app knew that there were loads of people who were selling, you know, so it's not only the people who were using, you know, there were always code words and things that people used. And I think with the growth of apps, it has just, it's exploded. I mean, you talked about, you know, before in your, uh, you know, like your early days and how you were dealing, uh, you know, coming through with accepting of the apps and what this was doing to your sex life. I was used to um, meeting someone in a bar and having a drink with someone that lasted at least 10, 15 minutes before there was an agreement that sex was going to happen. Yeah. And it was usually more like 10 minutes in my case. <laughs> um, but still, there was those 10 minutes were phenomenally profound in regard to forming a bond and trust. Yeah. Like I knew after 10 minutes, if I was going to fart in bed, it's okay to do that with him. It would be a shared humorous thing, mm-hmm. not a shaming thing. I know that after 10 minutes, I have a drink with someone. And when I m- would have sex with them, Sometimes uh, I would fall asleep drunk next to them and wake up the next morning. A one-night stand was kind of the sluttiest we could be back in the old days if it wasn't uh, in a cottage. And so you'd wake up the next morning and I couldn't remember his name and I had a hangover and I didn't want to be there. And I had to find the communication skills to get over the awkwardness of not remembering his name, knowing that I don't want to be there, but I will go through the social constructs of like having coffee with you and talking about who's going to use the shower first because that's what human beings do. It's social connections and communication. And I learned skills during those years that helped me to negotiate the very intimate thing that is two men hooking up or more. Just social norms of communicating boundaries, knowing how to get through awkward moments, social skills. Now, all overnight, that went onto an app. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, that was hard for me with all of the skills I'd learned pre-apps. Imagine what it's like for generations that did not know that kind of um, one-night stand culture that I'm a part of, that, that hooking up, looking for sex, love, intimacy, addressing loneliness, shame, the need to be affirmed as a sexy being and to be socially accepted within my sexy community, all of those things in this hookup that I've got to communicate in 140 characters with one picture and limited characters, you know, with emojis and emoticons. How do you do that without all of those social skills that are now redundant? I no wonder drugs are so profoundly there. It's no wonder we're getting sexually assaulted while we're on them. No wonder we're picking up glasses of drink that are full of, we think is water and full of G because we don't have the dialogue of looking out for each other and navigating this complex, potentially fatal sexual environments we're participating in. It's funny as well. Uh, They go hand in hand as well. Like, so when I'm on the apps, I, um, because I'm kind of old enough to have been pre-apps and stuff. So I kind of had to, you know, similar sort of experiences. I, when I'm sober, I mean, I don't have any of the apps. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing someone in a moment. I keep having to reiterate in case he's listening. But, um, <laughs> but like when he I'm- He knows, um, he knows. He knows. But when um, I am on the apps, um, when I'm sober or it's midweek, whatever, and I'm just checking and I get into a conversation with someone, then I will have a conversation and I'm very bantery and just kind of back and forth and almost taking those, that kind of the old bar sort of mentality out. But then- I rarely meet those guys and stuff. The guys who I end up meeting are when I've had drugs and I'm high and then I'm just using the apps to find sex and stuff. And then it's just, it. so it's 
I did have a point that connected this, but it's ebbing away from me. But it's kind of like the social skills when you're on drugs as well, it kind of, the app feeds the drugs, feeds the app, feeds the drugs and stuff. So it's kind of like if you're on drugs and you go on the app, then you are using it that way. But then the app sort of facilitates the use of drugs as well. Like consent. If I'm, um, if I'm, in a sex party, if, if I'm there and there's six other people there in sh- my shorts, does that mean I'm sexually available to everyone? Yeah. Uh, no, it does not mean that at all. Does everyone there know that? So it's that, that kind of language too. It's just what are the the very basic things like what consent means to me. If my shirt is off in a club, does that mean you can tweak my nipple? No, it is something that is um, touching my body in a sexual way which hasn't been invited. And these kind of skills of knowing how to communicate, put boundaries up, respect other people's signals, we don't have them. And it's really hard to learn them in an app hookup culture. Yeah, definitely. I'm one of those old fashioned people where I was also, you know, out and about cruising and picking up before apps. And I remember chatting to one of the younger guys who, who works here. And I was telling him, I said, I remember back in the days when you wanted to hook up with someone and you offered you know, to buy someone a drink at a bar or you ask a guy to dance, like, oh, would you like to dance? Way, way, way back. And I mean, you know, that kind of social construct and that social way of communicating or meeting people is totally lost. It's gone now. Now that it's all kind of happening by apps, let's talk about, we're touching on, you know, uh, shame a little bit and how, I guess back in the day, um, drug use or chem use was a little more underground unless you were maybe out in a club or in a venue. And now it's so exposed and it's so public and we know that, you know, you kind of have to be in the know. You know, the guys use all sorts of terminology and little bits of lingo and these little encrypted codes um, to kind of explain the things that they do or the things that they're into. I think one of our taglines for Econ is, what are you into? And it's always interesting, you're on an app. You know, and people always say, what are you into? And this now also has another meaning, which can be into, you know, the type of uh, drugs or chems that you're doing. So let's just chat very quickly about some of the things that people talk about and see. And, and this is in the use of things like emojis or, you know, we have, um, okay, I'll go through a few from the list. So um, Will, do you want to maybe say what some of them are? We have one P&P. So when you see this in a profile, P&P, uh, it's- Party and play. And the other is- And what does that mean? Uh, it's, it's chemsex, isn't it? Yeah, effectively. Yeah. And H and H. High and horny. I am wicked. Yeah, this is one, you know, sometimes there's no even, no conversation. The message is just that, H and H. Yeah. That's it. And it's like either you're on board with this or not. Um, G and T. Or is that G? Well, G well, is. I guess G, one, and T, the other. I will, well, G is. Uh, GBL or GB or GHB or the different ways of saying it. Um, and then T is Tina, which is crystal meth. Yeah. And then there are also other things that people use to drop little hints, subtle or otherwise. And it's also come from the use of emojis. Uh, very often you see the emoji of the autumn leaf. It's like weed. Which is for weed, yeah. So the autumn leaf is the weed emoji. And the other one is there's a one uh, for a syringe, uh, which is- Slamming. Which is slamming, which is quite common. There's often another one that runs around of a pill. Yeah. Slamming I, is injecting. Is injecting. crystal methylmethadone. And the other one is the pig's nose. I think that's just, see, <laughs> I was there when this was suggested, I guess, Anything goes, really, but piggy. But. Could be. 
I don't think it's got a connection to a specific drug, does it? Okay. I always associate it with just being piggy and, yeah. and having a, a sex positive attitude, but then um, to a lot of people, it means snorting. Snorting. Oh, yes. I didn't even say I fought piggy too. So, you know. See, snorting so old school now. We rather <laughs> drink the G or we smoke the mash. Not, not for me. But. Talk, I just remember something very funny about the snorting being old school. <laughs> I was chatting to someone at the weekend about this upcoming uh, podcast, and he was telling me about meeting up with a guy and he goes you know i met this guy and it was great we had a really good time and we didn't have sex you know he says but we stayed around we were flirting and then we started kissing so in intently you know and he said i went outside to have a he went outside to have a fag and as he got outside he realized that he was feeling so extremely dizzy and he ended up collapsing on the ground the end of it is finding out that the guy was actually gumming his meth so the guy was putting the meth under his gums and just from kissing him, the other guy actually got high and almost had an episode. I, that sounds, wow, I've never even heard of that. But yeah. So gumming drug, you know, like from the day when people used to put tobacco underneath mm -hmm. their, you know. So like, it was just, okay, yeah. not just rubbing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like putting a rock between your gum <coughs> right, and your yeah. cheek. Yeah. So gumming is well, also There's loads of ways way. to, yeah. to do it. You can drop a rock in someone's drink and um, a finger up the bum, if you're already in the throes of sex, can just have a little rock on there too that nobody would know. Yeah. yeah. Someone else said to me before, oh, I'd love to put some, you know, meth on your cock and then suck it off. I'm thinking. Because it is sexualized, it's fetishized. But also it goes back to what you said very early on, Antoine, which was when um, you'd prefer someone to be... Um, sober when they're yeah. with you because it's and when in my early days too i when everyone was doing ecstasy and crystal meth was really new i that we didn't want to have sex with people on ecstasy and we didn't want to have sex with people who are sober you know, we do seek out we want people to be on, a, on an equal kind of level yeah yeah. I completely get that. You know, people tell me, oh, you don't take anything, you're boring. And I get that. Mm. It's very awkward if you're in this state of euphoria and the other person is looking like Debbie Downer. Huh. It's like, you're going to bring my high down. You're going to bring my sex down. You stay and some with shame that. too. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you feel subconsciously, whoops, I'm doing too much G or I'm doing too much T lately or I haven't had sober sex in here, but I don't want to think about that. And then you're with someone sober. It's too real, you yeah. know. Find me another somebody on my level. Yeah, I, I, I never used to want to. I there's almost kind of as well. I guess it comes back to the shame thing, and almost like in my sense, a sense of being potentially judged by this person for the kind of the, the state that you're in, or like you. I also, it just always used to feel strange that when I was high and someone was on a completely different level. I think the connection. I mean. The connection is it's just lacking and stuff. So. Okay, so maybe this is a, a, maybe a good way, like educate me as the sober the sober guy. Is there or how could someone who's like me, not sober, or maybe even someone who's using, you know, tell the difference between, or what is their experience like for someone who takes GHB, um, someone who takes crystal, someone who slams, you know, um, like what, okay. talking about like naming different things that people are doing. Um, they're all about dopamine release, right? Yeah. And about disinhibition. And that's a pleasure always. I mean, it's always, uh, nearly all drugs do that. They disinhibit us and, and cause pleasure. And that's that's why we like them so much across the board. Um, the degree to which we're releasing dopamine, so crystal meth releases more dopamine than any other, but it also um, kind of creates a filter. Uh, it stops the filter that says this is appropriate and that's not. Um, a person who's on crystal meth will be feeling extremely disinhibited. If there's a f anything disinhibiting you from feeling pleasure, it switches it off. And that's such a relief. I have to say, the people who have always experienced some 
hyper-thinking around the sexiness or can't just indulge the moment and the sensations and the tactile and the smells and the feelings because the brain is so busy being active with thoughts and defenses and over-calculating and thinking of consequences and what should I do next and say next. Meth will shut that off and you can just indulge, but it also shuts off that other filter of this is appropriate behavior, but it's mm. not. This is a risk I normally wouldn't take, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, I don't care about work in this moment, whereas normally I'm really am quite responsible guy. Yeah. Well, and so essentially what they're, they're uh, drugs do that all to, to different kinds of degrees. Yeah. And then the consequences are all different too. So G obviously um, is, as you were saying before, Will, you knew a lot of people that have died. I've known hundreds yeah. and I'm not, it's not from AIDS. I'm talking about I've known hundreds of gay men that have died from drugs and it's G is responsible in nearly all of them. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it's um, and nearly many gay men who are on the hookup scene or in the club scene can name a number of people that have had very frightening experiences. Mm. So G is dangerous in that way, in an immediately fatally dangerous way, plus the, the risk of sexual assaults. Crystal meth, um, you don't die from it. Hardly ever dies, hardly anyone dies from a crystal meth overdose. It's quite hard to actually achieve that. You can, they do happen, but they're very quite rare. So the dangers with meth are kind of long-term addiction, mm -hmm. long-term degradation of self-esteem, long-term degradation of mental health. The, the recovery period after a meth bender is profound. It's weeks and weeks before you can really function again. Um, many weeks before you're at your, at your thriving best. And therefore the temptation to do it again, to cope with that low state is quite profound. So that's why it becomes addictive very quickly and you fall into a cycle of that. And meth and mental health also in regard to the psychosis, I think, like we're saying, many gay men in the hookup scene or club scene sort of can name a lot of people that have died from G. Nearly everyone can also name that person that, had, that when it was, too, it was really psychotic, yeah. paranoid, believing weird things. Someone that you'd been intimate with for two days in a bedroom and having an amazing time who suddenly turns into this frightened, criminal, mm. dangerous person that wants to do you harm for no reason because of things he believes. And that's really common too. Now, there are some deaths associated with that too, but a lot, a lot of crime and a lot of harms. Yeah. And I think we do have to factor that in. It's very hard to have a really good two-day crystal meth experience without that happening to yeah. you. It's funny, actually. Um, sorry, I'm just going to sidebar us again, as usual. When I was part of the counter scene and my area and stuff when I was doing all that, the things that were... It was funny because Crystal Meth has obviously been in the UK for a long time, but initially it always felt like a very American drug and stuff. It felt like something over there. And then it's kind of slowly with the rise of kind of chemsex and chillouts and stuff, meth seems to have, because obviously I guess as well, it's not really some, in a club when you're like sparking up a pipe and stuff. It's more, I think it's something that you can do more readily at someone's home than in sort of a, a, a nightclub environment. But when I was doing like on the, the scene and stuff, it was more uh, G and methadrone, which were the ones that I was taking. But then as I kind of, after, around the time that I was getting my job at Recon, meth was coming in more and more. And I kind of, I in a way I'm kind of relieved because I kind of, as I said before, I've got very addictive personality. So I kind of only tried it a few times, but then- Just to check, you're talking about two different drugs here, oh, meth sorry. for methamphetamine, yeah. crystal meth, and meth for methadrone. Oh yeah, sorry, no, methadrone and G were what mostly doing, and okay. then um, methamphetamine okay. came in, was coming in to see more and more. And, um, and the change that happened within the people who were taking it was, um, like this one guy in particular, 
I consider him a friend during those years, but in reality, we had nothing in common and we were just kind of party friends and stuff. But over the years, since I sort of stopped doing that, the sort of chemsesh scene, I see him around all the time now and he he's lost his job. He's, he's kind of, cause he was doing Tina, like pretty much it started, it was like Wednesday through till Monday and stuff. But then I think it just got less and less and he became so paranoid and he was so, there seemed to be, I don't know, I, just to what you were saying and yes. stuff like it kind of being awake that whole time and just and whatever the effects it has on you, it was quite shocking to see. You became skeletal as well and stuff like it was. It's a very traumatic experience to put your body and brain through a two-day wake meth experience. There's mm. so much um, hyper-vigilance and um, so much focused attention and really that filter being on for such a long time plus a physical exhaustion. And if paranoia or psychosis steps in too, then it's... Um, it's as profound as it, it can cause PTSD, just one episode. Um, a person who experiences 24 hours of extreme terror for what they believe is happening, extreme terror being watched, uh, being cameras being everywhere, not being able to trust your friends, people intentionally trying to infect you or dose you up or overdose you or have complex agendas or you're at the center of it and that they wish you harm. And actually believing that intensely in an intense state of fear for a 24 hour period it's kind of like coming back from uh, as a soldier in Iraq. You actually are traumatized by this and need a lot of support. And a lot of people in that scene are experiencing that kind of every weekend and become norm that becomes normalized. And yeah. that's even more frightening. We a have to, as a community, really address this. A few weeks ago, we did a virtual masterclass event. And during our masterclass event, we had one session that was based on. Uh, like gay men's mental health during the lockdown. And one of the things I wish we had addressed, which we didn't do for this particular one, was basically the effect of, you know, chems or the usage during the lockdown. And it's really interesting. You know, I, I think for so many people, this has been really different. I have from chatting to someone I spoke to on an app for the first time a few months ago that I've now become sort of friends more friendly with so we also have more friendly chats and he was telling me that you know during the lockdown he really struggled and he only started his cam use during the lockdown because that was the way that he coped hmm. whereas you know there was another uh friend that i've worked with before i've known for a very long time and this guy has been a prolific drug user, quite happy and I, I guess mostly functioning for 25 plus years. Just to say it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he told me that the lockdown for him was quite interesting because suddenly he realized he was stuck in his house without a job. He didn't have the money to be able to afford to go out and buy the drugs. And so he had to find a new way of coping. So for right. him, the first three months of like weaning off of not having what he had been having for so many years was a bit terrifying for him. You know, he's like, I can't imagine like what my boyfriend was going through, you know, while I've been like coming down. And he says, you know, now six months down the road, you know, six months on another three months on, he realizes how wonderfully he functions oh. in a state of being sober. And he said, without the oh. lockdown, he would have probably just carried on using and he would have never got to this point. So you have both extremes, you know, of different mm. experiences. So the lockdown, I think every listener is, can identify with the lockdown kind of forced us all to look at a whole lot of things. Yeah. Mm. Um, in regard to sex, for a lot of us, 
sex is an autopilot thing in our lives. It's just, it's recreational. It's something we do. It's something we pass the time. Sometimes it's about managing boredom or needing affirmation. Sometimes it's just about fun. Sometimes it's uh, available on a plate. Sometimes it's part of our, the clubbing or even the fetish club scene is our only social life and it's our only community. And lockdown changed all of that. And a lot of it, we had to look at what is the role of sex in my life? Because now I have to think about it. I can't just do it unconsciously. I have to think about the role sex and place in my life. Same with drugs. So a lot of us use drugs and alcohol in unconscious ways. You know, I, I might have a drink today. I don't know why I'm having it. I'm because everyone else is, I beg your pardon. Um, after I've had my, it might be because I've wound up after work and I want to rewind. That's me having a drink consciously. I know why I'm having this drink because I'm wound up, I want to relax and unwind and this drink is serving the purpose. So when I order my second drink, do I stop and go, hold on, do the first drink achieve its purpose? Am I just having a second drink autopilot, unconscious, because that's what everyone else is doing? So conscious use of drugs and alcohol is essential to avoiding harm, really. And lockdown kind of made us all look at it, made our drug use conscious. So a lot of people that um, realized, I don't, uh, I thought I had a problem with chemsex. I thought I couldn't really control it, but when I had to stay home because it was safer and the whole world was, it was really easy. Oh, wow, I don't have that big a problem. And then there are loads of other people too that realized I can't be alone. I need activity and people and affirmations and busyness. I can't be alone. And my way to cope with that is drugs and alcohol. And I never knew that before. And now I'm learning that the hard way. Lockdown has been a phenomenal uh, Petri dish of learning how to look consciously at a lot of the things we take for granted in our lives. And as a drugs worker myself, I've found it fascinating because I'm now working with people who are consciously looking at their behavior and their choices. Whereas before it had been a whole kind of gay community of people who did these things because everyone else does, because it felt good. They haven't really thought much about it because it's available to me because someone offered it, not even thinking about it. It's been an, an extraordinary time in history. Yeah. During our panel discussion, one of the things we were very um, aware that we needed to do was to not just have the conversation and leave people hanging. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we had uh, the guys on from Pink Therapy and we were putting out links to resources that people can tap into if they feel like they need help. And I think here we should do exactly the same. You know, if there's anyone who needs help, I mean, feel free to, you know, reach out to us, tell us, you know, your stories. Um, if there's anyone who needs, do you have you know, like any resources, like where should we point people or where can we point or direct people to okay. if they need help? Well, the first thing I want to say is that in regard to drug services, um, don't think of them as the place you go when you have an addiction problem and everything's fallen apart. That's not the purpose of drug services. That's mm -hmm. not their purpose. Yeah. Their purpose is to learn how to be aware and informed about the things you're putting in your body. That's the purpose of them. In regard to chem specifically, use these services because this is not just popping an ecstasy and having an, a laugh low risk. You're talking about really hardcore drugs that have phenomenal consequences. And any person who worth their salt with an ounce of self-care and intelligence will go and investigate from a professional with a conversation about how do I incorporate these things into my life in a way that I'm not going to die or hurt other people. The same way that if you're going to go parachuting, you don't just buy a parachute and do it. You'll go and learn. Think of drugs that way and think of drug services that way. There are... All around the world, there's loads of information on nearly all, every gay man's website, gay health service website. There is at least links to harm reduction information for chems and drugs. It's, it's thanks to many activists 
around the world, chemsex activists specifically, we've kind of made uh, nearly all gay men's health services have links to these kind of services on their websites now, which is good. So you can learn online if you don't want to go and talk to somebody. And in regard to getting help, again, lots of stuff online too. Um, in London, we've got um, the Antidote Drug and Alcohol Service um, at a London Friend. We've got 5016 Street where I work, um, which has chemsex support services. And um, any drug service is good, but in regard to chemsex and you don't know where to go, start with your sexual health clinic because every sexual health clinic in England has a team of health advisors. And if you're, there's some complicated stuff around your sex life that's got to do with gay sex and the cultural competency of gay sex, then start there. Don't don't just start with the drug services, start with your health advisors in the sexual health clinics. And um, my website, which is davisstewart.org, if you just Google David Stewart Chemsex, a whole lot of stuff comes up. So there's a YouTube channel where there's a, we talk about lots of talks with loads of the chemsex activists I've met around the world about the role sex and drugs and pleasure play in our lives and how to navigate them. And that could be helpful if we're doing conscious awareness um, sex and drug use, if we want to do it consciously, like I was saying about the lockdown. It's also tools like if someone is in your house and they've turned psychotic and you don't know what to say, what is the sentence that comes out of my mouth that's best to help this person? There's resources like that on my website which sort of help you to navigate that. Chemsex first aid, what can go crucially wrong and what do you do in that moment, in that moment where what do I do right now, someone could die within a half an hour. Then there's um, resources around that too. But most of the stuff you'll find attached to David Stewart Chemsex will be dialogues around the role camp, sex and drugs and pleasure play in our lives and how to be safe around them. Thank you so much for that, David. That's really great. I think, you know, this is a topic that I, you and I have hmm. both crossed paths with um, over so many years. And I was saying in the break also, I just can't let it go. I have so many questions and I also <laughs> question myself and I don't think that I will ever be 100% informed on what happens. And the only thing that I can do is to be responsible enough to stay as up to date or as informed as I possibly can. So I know how to, one, as a producer, to kind of manage these situations as they come along. And also, you know, I said at the beginning that we didn't want to demonize anyone's usage, but it's also, I think, think having an understanding of where people are at in their lives and you know we, yeah we don't want to shame anyone no. you know there's 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 no there's no shame in it whatsoever i think one of the things we want to do is continue to provide you know these resources um so we would like you to email us uh, podcast at recon.com um and tell us about your lockdown experiences um and also you know about your experiences with chems uh, or with drug use or with abuse. Uh, if you need some you know, direction in terms of resources, uh, as like David said, you can go out and you can Google. Um, we'll try to do some researching on our end as well and see if we can at least begin to point you uh, in the right direction. And, that, and you can email us, well, you know, you don't have to give your name and you don't have to give anything like that and stuff. And, you know, it's just, we're just interested to see where our members are at and how people are handling and coping and, you know, just kind of touching base with us really. So, so thank you for listening. Let's have a final uh, few words from everyone on the panel. So uh, the lovely Will. Um, I mean, I've not prepared anything, but um, I just think that it's good to have these conversations and it, it like, 
Anton says there's literally no shame. I mean, as you can tell, I will openly talk about my experiences, sometimes to my own detriment, but, you know, uh, I think it's good that we talk and we get stuff out there. It is good to talk, and it's actually essential and crucial to talk. And, and you can reach out to me on social media too. It's at Davida Stewart. Stewart's what S-T-U-A-R-T. Whether you do drugs or not, it's kind of irrelevant. And what we can do to be really brilliant community members is charity starts at home. If anyone's going to hook up with me, if you're nervous about having sober sex with me, I promise you can talk to, to me about it. I want to be the guy you can talk to about it. If you want to be high because you feel nervous about having sex, you can talk to me about that regardless of whether I do drugs or not. I want, you, I want to be the lover, the shag that you can talk to about all of these things. My bed is... I want it to be the safest place, the place of dialogue and not just a place of hookup, not just a place of mindless autopilot where you have to tick boxes or live up to expectations because there's a lot of that going on out there. And I just think one thing we can all do is be better online and be better in bed in regard to being generous and kind and mindful of the complexity of the person that we're engaging with. I think one of the reasons why I'll say again, I keep bringing this up is because I want to understand. I'm also a talker and I love having a conversation. <laughs> and I would like to think that I'm pretty switched on when it comes to a lot of things. And, and I think for me, the talking is really good because it helps me to make decisions that I feel comfortable with. And so let's talk and let's ask questions. You know, we say this a little while ago that we will very often need to have the difficult conversations and ask the difficult questions. And I don't think we should ever stop that. Yeah, it's, it's the thing is, it's like, it's it's a complex topic and it's something that, you know, if it's nothing that we're gonna be able to come up with an answer in, in like in an hour, an hour and a half podcast or anything like that. But it's just the process of starting the conversation is I think what's important and key. Thank you for joining us in our Kink and Chems conversation. Don't forget to rate us five stars and leave a review. And also don't forget to tell your friends uh, about the Recon podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you.